Welcome to Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. This podcast is a collection of historical and philosophical references, contemplations, lectures, and exchanges with David M. Valadez, his students, and guests. Podcasts are recorded on the mat at the Ascension Center in Southern California and in studio. These podcasts are provided to cultivate the warrior on the way and to add light to their path. All right, we received two questions from a listener and friend. And we're going to address one. And really, it's a request just to um, share on the topic. Okay. Um, I don't want to read the message verbatim because it will raise political issues. But I think that's part of what I would address. Um, your training is not political and should not be. It's very fashionable nowadays to measure your worth through politics. But this is a departure from the way. There's a lot of people claiming to be on the way and they are um, find some sort of negative aspect in the true followers of the way who aren't out there correcting society or looking for some sort of social justice. But this is worldly attachment. This is not our thing. It's also not the means by which the world is addressed through the path. It's, it's quite antithetical. You have to understand this. It's antithetical even in its direction or its orientation. It's also quite delusional. It's antithetical in its direction and orientation because the way is focused on the individual. Fix yourself, free yourself from karma and from suffering and therefore for the sharing and the causing and the transporting of suffering to others and the world by default becomes more just and more peaceful. Free yourself from yourself and you become the cessation of suffering embodied. This seeking of social justice and confusing the way with the way of the world and becoming interested in politics is delusional because it functions through the ego tripartite and through dichotomy. And it brings a righteousness to our will to power and thus a justification of our own fears and our own pride. 
And there is no cessation of suffering in that. There is no possibility of justice in that. And that is where the delusion rests. In many ways, then, the federated dojo cannot be a dojo. It cannot. Because federation itself means political. This is not a new understanding. This is why throughout the history of religions, you always had eruptions in the political security of the various institutions. And there were always hermits, and there were always saints, and there were always monastic orders. And with them, there's always some attempt to assimilate them back into the political federation of whatever religion it is. Some cultures honored the hermit, the saint, the anchorite more than others. So, for example, in India, this is a long history of just the master, not the big, huge political affiliation. Some, like in Japan, have these big religious federations, but they still, their heroes of each one is usually the quite independent practitioner. So I think already if there's any political aspect to your training, you're in violation of or in contradiction with Merton's you know, advice, which is our proximity to God is proportionate to our distance from the world. So let's not get this person in any kind of political hot water. Um, and let me just speak generally of what they're dealing with. Um, maybe I'll make it fictional. Imagine you're in a dojo and a person comes in and they start training a lot compared to everyone else. They're training every day. Let's say they meet my suggested minimum requirement of four hours a day. They're training every day, four hours a day. Amongst a group of people who are not. Maybe that group of people has most of their individuals training either one hour a day or one hour three times a week. Do you understand? And prior to this new person joining, all those other people were by that training commitment able to establish rank and title. 
This new person training four hours a day has no rank and title. How would you think or how would you expect that other group to act towards this new person? What would you think is some of the possibilities? Let us assume, let's take one off the table and say they have no response. They do their thing and they're fine. Okay? In fact, they're encouraged by her. They're motivated by her. Okay? Let's take that one off the table. I can tell you now that's not what is happening. Okay? So what else do you think is happening? You have to come over here. Perhaps jealousy or talking down, saying she's doing it the wrong way, not, okay. not their way. And w what do you think would be, or by what means, or why is this jealousy being manifested? And, and anyone can answer. Because it's outside of what they believe to be the right way, their way. Because by the time that this new person is putting in, they're going to become, if not more skilled than their seniors, at least more skilled for how long they've been there than their seniors were. And just the fact that it looks like they have no rank because maybe they don't have the belt or anything, that's how they're treating that person regardless of skill. Okay, Let, let's go into something that, that you said. Um, I once did, as I told you earlier, remember, um, in my own training back as a teenager, I realized how much time I was not actually training uh, at my practice, okay? So again, remember, it's a, it's, a, it's a serious interest, okay? Because I was, at that time, I was uh, a national contender in the sport I was doing, okay? And you want to win, got it? And I'm training with the national coach. You want to win, you're around everyone that wants to win, okay? And there's just a kind of inertia that drives you towards um, efficiency. And you already learn the training equations, what I call the training equations, right? You already learn, hey, get yourself a good coach, right? A good coach is going to make you better than you can ever be by yourself, okay? And then surround yourselves with a bunch of people that want to win because they're going to push you, okay? Those are the first two training equations. But this last one is about there has to be this minimum amount of training that you're actually doing in order to compete at this level, okay? Um, and through the decades, what I learned was it's somewhere between four on the short end, four hours per day, and six hours, okay? You can go over, and there's some sports where you go over, so... Um, for example, at that time in cycling, it was not unheard of to be on your bike for eight hours a day. 
But doing other sports, you know, like wrestling eight hours a day, you're probably going to get a diminishing return in the fact that you might be injured or you might be overexhausted and you can't, uh, now you're not training consistently over the week or the month or so on, right? So as a ballpark, and which I recommended to you guys, is you really want to shoot for that four to six hours, okay, somewhere in there. Um, and... Uh, as I mentioned earlier in Iido today, I started to realize that even though I went to class, I was actually doing about 15 to 20 minutes of actual training because class is so structured and there's so many different athletes there, right? Even though I went to practice, there was all these different things that are happening as part of practice. A lot of them are administrative. A lot of them are just waiting for your turn to get under the coach's gaze, etc. And it uh, what was a, supposed to be an hour practice was actually about 15 to 20 minutes worth of work, okay? Um, later, and, and when I realized that, it was because I was timing it. I was timing how much time I was actually training, and that's how I learned that. And later, I took that mindset of, like, you should record what you're actually doing, okay? Um, and so in that same way, I started looking at, especially when I got to the martial arts, um, calculating out in a positive way, like if you do two hours a week, right, how many hours does that equal over the year? Do you get that? So how many weeks are there? We could do the math real quick. How many weeks are there in a year? Is it 72? 52. Okay, so we're doing two hours a week, and we have 52, and that is going to give us 104 hours a year, okay? And then we are training. Let's do the bottom end. We're training four hours a day, so times seven, that is 28 hours, so we'll do 28 times 52, and now we're at 1,456 hours, okay? Um, the other person was doing what? 102? 104. Okay. And let's figure out how many years it would take that person to get 1456. So my mathematicians help me here. I divide this by 102? 104, sorry. 104. Oh, sorry. I got to do that math again. Uh, 28 times... Okay, so I divide it by 104. That's 14 years. It's going to take you 14 years, okay? 14 years to do what one person did in one year. Okay, that's the reality of it. And everyone should know that, right? And uh, let's be generous. Okay, because there's a lot of things that go into this, right? For example, 14 years doesn't necessarily produce the same outcome as the one year. Why? Well, maybe you're old, do you see? And there's some sort of degeneration effect from our physical degeneration. There's some sort of degenerative effect in our training and the skill of our art that comes through the degeneration of our body. Do you get that? 
Um, also, maybe you started out when you were single. You're not as mature. And now you got married, and now you have kids, and you got five dogs, not just one cat. Do you see? And uh, it's not truly going to take you 14 years. It's probably going to be about 20 years to get that amount because you might had to have dropped out. Do, do you get it? So it, let's just be generous and go, this person did it in 14 years, and there was no degenerative aspect to their body as they aged over that 14 years, and they were actually able to accomplish it. Okay, got it? That's the raw fact. But we, st we struggle with it. This is where the jealousy comes from. If, if we could accept it as fact, we would all be able to do what we took off the table. Well, of course they're going to get better than me. They're doing this. I haven't even trained 14 years. They already passed me. Why shouldn't they be better than me? Do you see? But that's the person who accepts the fact. Do you see? The person who does not accept the fact is all these other people. Okay. There's things in place that help them not accept the fact. And what do you think those are? Rank. Yeah, rank. Right? What else did we mention? Rank and title. Do you see? You're the sensei. You're the assistant instructor. Um, you are the black belt. Do you got it? Um, I remember when I was starting and I started in a federation, it was quite unusual, um, Aikido, the way it was set up compared to my other arts. So in other arts, for example, like in other sports, uh, in boxing and in wrestling, they don't have, um, ranks or they certainly don't have them categorized according to a certain number of techniques, right? Um, for example, boxing might be, uh, you might be ranked, uh, but it has to do with your competition. It doesn't have anything to do with how many years you did something or how many strikes you know. Do you get it? Um, wrestling has some sort of categorization, but it's physical-based. It's what's your weight kind of thing, what's the size of your school, et cetera, et cetera. Even in my karate system, um, you could test when you wanted, do you see? There, there was a, uh, there were certain forms and techniques you had to know and up through the first two ranks, that was okay, all right? But after that, you had to spar, do you see? And so, and you couldn't go in there and just stomach the sparring. The point was that you showed skill, all right? Um, you had, there was, there was one guy in our dojo who, uh, was very physically unfit. He would come regularly, but he would do about one class a week. Okay? And that was his thing. That's what he wanted to do. And so he could only be a uh, yellow belt because he did not want to spar. He never came to the sparring classes. 
And so he would never, never pass the sparring for his next belt, his orange belt. Okay. Um, and the instructor of the, of the school was, there's no problem. Your, your yellow belt, you come in working out and you do your yellow belt stuff. You go in the yellow belt and white belt class, you know. By default, the rank was sort of skill-based. Do you see that? Maybe, maybe they thought about it, but maybe they didn't, okay? Well, when I got to Aikido, I, they had a formula on the wall at my first dojo. It was, uh, there was like a matrix, you know, like a grid. You had to have so many hours, and you had to have these techniques, you see? And it was very easy because I came to Aikido with this other athletic mind frame of four to six hours. And it was just like, can I go to that class? 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 You know. And they used to have this roster that would, you would keep your form, your, your attendance, because they had to calculate the hours, right? And it was like a, on a piece of graph paper, and you, you would draw like one X for one hour, or one line diagonal for one hour, and then another one. And mine looked like hapogiri. Do you know what I mean? It was like a, a line, an X, a plus, another cardinal direction, and it would go like that. And it would go all the way across the graph paper. You know? And then, of course, later I asked if I could... Uh, if uh, I could come in and, and start cleaning the dojo, you know, I noticed that there were problems there. But really, my point was to get a key. If I get a dojo key, and then I go in there, I can train more things, right? Uh, and I thought it was a worthy trade. I'm going to clean, and I get to work out while I'm in here, you know. Um, so I got more hours that way. And of course, you're learning whatever amount of techniques I don't remember but let's say it was like 10 per rank, do you know? And eventually, you know all the damn techniques. It doesn't take very long to know all of Aikido Federated Kihon Waza. There's not that many. Um, but by the math standards, I should be, on my first test, I should be going for third degree black belt. I got all the hours. I got all the techniques. In fact, the people that were going for third or second were asking me, hey, Dave, how does that technique go? But they can't. They wouldn't. I got to go up to first queue, but it was like a big deal. But you're like, why? Right? If you were in boxing and you beat the world champion, you're the world champion. And no one's going to care that you've only been trained in a year or what have you. Do you see that? They're just phenoms. They're just out there. They're, what really is, they're doing way more work than everyone else is doing. Okay. But in a, in a place where it's skill-based or where it's some sort of objective basis, such as weight, size of your school, or you're the world champion now. You just knocked out the world champion. Yeah, you're the world champion, okay? Where it's operating at that kind of objective level, 
I think it's easy to accept the training equations. It's easy to accept this person did in one year what's going to take you 14 years to do. You see? But when you don't, when you're working with rank and title, but your rank and title is not based in anything objective, the training equations are actually socially problematic. Do you see? They are a threat to the political hegemony in place. That's what's happening. Again, go back to the first thing. This is one of the reasons why, if you are truly in the way, you should not be in a federation. This is a way of the world. In the same way that Zen monk EQ held the title of the abbot and the leader of his school of Zen, he left it. He left it. And he's held up to this day in Japanese culture as man, the Zen man. The Zen man. There are lots of abbots. There are lots of people that have headed the Zen school. But we don't know them. They drive BMWs and they wear Rolexes. We don't know them. But when EQ was invited, right? To the Shogun's palace, he's going to go in through the kitchen. He's dressed normal. His everyday work clothes. And the staff's like, he's there. He was invited there for this party, this dinner. And the staff is like, hey, bum, get out. You can't come in. He's all right, cool. And he leaves. He goes, puts on his purple robes, which is the sign that he is the head person. He goes up to the front gate. And everyone starts bowing like crazy. Oh, here's the head guy. Here's the head guy. And what he does is they're telling him to come inside. And he doesn't go inside. He takes off his robes, strips down naked, and hands them to the attendants and says, here, this is who you wanted. This is what you wanted here. You did not actually want me here. This is the true way, not the purple robes. The purple robes are only symbolic or emblematic of the true way. They're not the true way then, do you see? There's already a distance to them a distance between them and the true way. They're not the true way. They stand for the true way. When we do not heed Merton's advice, and we keep this in mind, these symbolic or emblematic things are not the way. They can only stand for the way. They can only be a symbol of the way. When we keep Merton's advice what we need to note is the symbol and the emblem is of the world. It is of the dichotomous mind. It is of the ego tripartite. It's nothing else. 
And this is, this is, ask this question now. Can there be any sort of politics that does not make use of this symbol or the emblem? And the answer is no. Because the symbol and the emblem are about surface things. It's about surface things. And that is why it's part of the ego tripartite and why it is not part of the way. The way sees past the surface. Doesn't need the surface. You could be dressed like a bum and come through the kitchen. But the ego tripartite draws a distinction because it's dichotomous between the bum coming in from the kitchen and the abbot in these glorious purple robes coming in through the main entrance. Like, likewise, it creates problems when it's hit with reality. Do you see? Oh, here's the robes. I'm naked now and I'm leaving. What, what, a, what a slap in that system's face. Do you see that? It's like he went around and go, fuck you, and fuck you, and fuck you. And then peace out. I'm gone. Mic drop. Do you get it? Fuck you all. Well, that's exactly what the person does who accomplishes in one year what's taking four years. And by the same means, do you see? And by the same delusion that the symbol or the emblem is actually the way. It's not. And you have the same social upheaval for the same reasons. But again, these are, these are worldly problems. We, if, if you're facing that, you should do what EQ did. Take off those purple robes. Go up the mountain. Or in his case, go to the whorehouse. That's where he ended up. Because again, there's no difference between the monastery and the whorehouse for the person of the way. That dichotomy is worldly and delusional. But these stories are timeless because while they do point to social scenarios, they also point to personal scenarios. And I think that's how we would gain more from looking at these things. There's something in the Christian tradition. There's a character in the Old Testament. Her name is Jezebel. If you read the Old Testament, and it's, it, again, I think if you read it literally as a historical document, you're missing the point. For example, I don't know if EQ ever did those things. But does it still work as a pointer for the way? Yes, it does. Is it still timeless in the truth that it is presenting before our view and our consideration? Yes, it is. 
And that is why it is passed down over and over and over again. Because more of us human beings can find the freedom and the truth in it that it's offering us. If it didn't, it would have never been recorded. It wouldn't be passed down, and I wouldn't be here telling you about it. The same thing is with Jezebel. Is there a Jezebel? I don't know, and I don't care. That's a worldly question. Is there something timeless in the story, a pointer that is common to all of us? Yes. So Jezebel is from another tribe. And in her tribe, they worship another god. It's the god of fertility and agriculture. Material things. Worldly things, do you see? And she comes and she joins the Israelite tribe through marriage. But she doesn't assimilate. Today she'd be held up as, you know, you go girl. You get it? But that's not the point of the story. What you're looking at is an aspect of ourselves that has a propensity toward worldliness and materiality. So she comes to the Israelites And she does not align herself with the immaterial, invisible Yahweh. She practices all her rituals from her old tradition, meaning she's staying with this worldly view. Meaning there's a part of us that does that. And she seeks more and more power over other people, just like social justice does today. Worldly power. She starts getting other people to think like her, materialistically. And she hunts down and kills the prophets of Yahweh. The teachers and thus the teaching of immateriality. And she does this quite successfully until another prophet comes, Elijah, and just says, no, no more. So like in us, do you see? There has to be a part of us, like EQ, who says, fuck all this. Strip down. There's something, again, quite powerful about not just taking off the purple robes, but all garments. Do you see? No clothes. Naked now. Just like, it's, it's one thing to claim the monastery has this material aspect to it 
and then you go up into a mountain cave. But it's a whole other level that you go to the whorehouse. Do you see? There's a whole other thing when you trade the purple robes for yellow robes versus now you're naked. No purple robes, you're naked now, do you see? Later in the Christian tradition, they take this story and they talk about, they call it the spirit of Jezebel. And they kind of align it narratively because we learn through narratives. If you're, if you're a public speaker, usually you take, you're going to take some public speaking class, right? They're going to tell you how to speak. They're going to teach you all these things. And sooner or later, someone is going to tell you the value of telling a story. So you ever look at our great orators, they're always telling you a story. Usually you'll get some sort of assignment at first, you see. It's like you have five minutes, and man, is it tough to come up with five minutes of whatever material that you're talking on, unless you tell a story. Then it is very easy, and everybody's paying attention because we're almost evolutionarily predisposed to listen to a story and fill it in, right? And we want to know the ending. Just play a joke on your friends and just shut the movie off before the climax reveals what's happening. Everybody's going to go, oh, right? That was a joke we used to do each other in college. No one ever was like, all right, cool, let's get on to the next thing. Everyone wants to know the ending. How many, like, we watched Game of Thrones even after the show started sucking. Remember, what was that like? I don't know. One of the earlier seasons, right? I was like, let's just get to the ending. I was even watching them on Fast Forward just to get to the ending, do you see? You get trapped in it. Okay, so the pre-moderns knew this too, so they tell stories. They tell stories to make the point. So when they talk about the spirit of Jezebel, they're talking about our propensity for materiality, our propensity to treat the symbol and the emblem as if it is real and not the thing it's standing, not the reality it's standing for, do you see? Also, the difficulty we have with letting go of material things, worldly things, like stop playing politics. If you're in the way, stop playing politics. It's very difficult. How can you be Buddhist? How can you claim to have compassion when this is happening in society? Do you see? It's very hard for those people. They can't let go of it. Deep down, there's zero faith. That the world is better if you just yourself reached Buddhahood. You can see there's lack of faith there. And that's the problem, do you see? So they make a story out of this, out of the Jezebel story. They expand it. There's a spirit of Jezebel. And they align it with a kind of dark force, almost a demon, a personification of that spirit, do you see? And you're waging war against that demon. If we look at this in modern terms, without the narrative, it's like every one of us has a propensity to get stuck on the surface of things. It is very difficult for us. Or let us say there is an aspect of ourselves. We know it. It is the first mind aspect. It's that tripartite between the ego, dichotomy, and then the preference avoidance behavioral track. 
and we know that all operates at the surface. So we have an aspect of ourselves that is just designed to function at the surface of things. And if we are on the path, then we have to conquer that demon. Or we have to allow space and time in terms of training, in terms of the training equations, where we're actually functioning at depth, not at the level of the symbol or the emblem. We have to treat the symbol and the emblem as ultimately false. It's only then that would a, that a student like that could come into a dojo and not disrupt it. Do you see? Would not disrupt it at all. It would be motivating. Hey, are you coming in in the afternoon? Can, can I join you? Yeah, sure, come on, join me. This side of us, this Jezebel, this demon, this propensity for worldliness is something you have to fight or face or release from, however you want to put it, on a daily basis, maybe a minute-by-minute minute basis, do you see? Especially in your training. Do you come to the dojo to exercise? Well, spirit of Jezebel. Do you come here to learn how to armbar someone? Spirit of Jezebel. Here we kind of help you, right? Because we don't really have rank. We don't have title. And we tell you all, when you get here, you suck. Right? And there's always something to work on. Because this depth is infinite. So you never really have a sense of accomplishment. There's always way more ahead of you than you ever accomplished. Do you get that? And that we have almost the opposite problem, don't we? Right? Sometimes facing how much more is ahead of us is is so damn daunting that we can start to experience uh, a demoralization. We we don't have the other thing of like, look how great I am. Do you see? And maybe that is helping our ego because when that new person comes in and we do have one right now right it, just coincidentally uh, we have one who did not take your usual what three to seven years to uh, start appreciating daily training and the training equations right um, I'm in the same boat do you see but i so what enters my mind may be entering your mind is what I'm saying here. What enters my mind is like, okay, let's see you keep it up. It's one thing to start like that. Let's see you keep it up because we know how difficult that is. Do you see? We know how difficult that is. It's great that he's doing it. 
and we're, we're going to support him. But even in all the support, it doesn't mean you're going to be able to do it. Okay. And in fact, because we're not attached to the worldly way, when, when or if he fails at it, we're going to expect that that failure is part of the training, not the end of the training. In fact, maybe even that's when training actually begins. Maybe it's later, do you see? Because right now he's a single male, right, with no job. Maybe it's later when, hey, let's see you have that practice. When you get married or when you have kids or you have a career, do you see? Let's see it then. And then help him in that regard, right? But I also think there's things institutionally that go with the worldly way, the political way. One of the tenets of an institution is to um, make sure it exists through time. There are always these kind of homeostatic efforts in an institution. This is why, for example, you have, remember the matrix for ranking was a, yes, a number of hours, but it was also techniques, do you see? Versus like in my karate system, you did learn forms, but then there was sparring which would be no form. Do you get that? You have just a system that is just forms. This is how the institution or the federation or the worldliness of the dojo gets to maintain itself through time. Those things look like they're not related, but they are related, meaning the symbol and the emblem mistakenly treated as the thing it is actually symbolic of. The jealousy, do you see? A system of social categorization not based on anything objective, such as noting and accepting the fact that one year of training can make up for someone else doing 14 years of training. The social upheaval that comes from somebody bringing the truth into our space is all supported by and supporting this idea of just the homeostatic use of forms for the institution. So while we got rid of rank, that's another one. We got rid of title here. We have a different sense of culture. The expectation is those training equations. We also don't prioritize form. Do you see? Form doesn't mean anything here. It's the transcendence of form that means everything here. Because it's the transcendence of the world. The form is of the world. And when all you have is, can you transcend form, you either can or you can't. And it doesn't matter how many years you have on. 
It doesn't matter. None of it matters. It probably doesn't even matter whether you're doing four to six hours a day. I would never say that that is proof positive that you're going to be able to transcend form. I would only say that might get you in the ballpark. I just know you won't get in the ballpark with less. But it's no guarantee. So when you take away the guarantee and you take away that homeostatic institutional aspect of form, you're even more in a field of infinity. You see, just like uh, uh, there's always a sense here that there's more that you don't know, do you see? There's, more, there's so much more you haven't done yet, do you see? We always have that sense. Well, it just gets added to the fact that it's, it's not, there's not even, let's not even talk in terms of more. It's just infinity. I have no idea if I will ever transcend my art. I have no idea if I will ever reach awakening. Do you see? It's hard then to look down on others or to be jealous of others. Do you see? We're all just floating in space, man. Where the hell are we going? I don't know. Where'd we come from? I cannot feel anything. You see? But the dojo here is aligned that way because it is on the path and is designed to keep you on the path. Okay? And that means to help you address our own tendency towards dichotomy and materiality and worldliness, our own battle with Jezebel. Do you see? This concludes this episode of Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. For more information, please visit sentiencenter.com, S-E-N-S-H-I-N-C-E-N-T-E-R.com or find us at Facebook at Sension Center and on our YouTube channel at Sension One. Thank you for listening.